I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians 2, and we'll be finishing the end of the chapter, and we'll go all the way up to the end of chapter 2 tonight. Uh, as you turn to Philippians 2, I want to read you some, some pairs of names. I want you to think about what comes to mind first when I read these pairs. Martin Luther King Jr. and Rosa Parks. Henry Ford and Elon Musk. Elon Musk and Neil Armstrong. Captain Crunch and Tony the Tiger. Gordon Ramsay and Jamie Oliver. Mickey Mouse and Bugs Bunny. Or SpongeBob. Whether civil rights or space exploration, serial brands, or cartoons, these names are the embodiment of their cause or their category. These names are the characterization of their genre or maybe their movement. These names are perhaps imperfect people or characters, but certainly fitting exemplars of their kind. These people and animals are marked by a particular character or charisma, maybe even a heart or a skill set in some, some cases, or a knowledge base that make these people the right people for the right thing at the right time. Tonight, here in Philippians 2, we see two men who embody what it means to live a life worthy of the gospel, who in God's kind providence were the right people for the right thing at the right time, at least here in the book of Philippians. And while the influence of these two men may not seem to sweep across the nations and rock the pillars of society quite like Bugs Bunny, their example indeed has had and continues to have an enduring impact on the church universal. You see, their names, their legacies, their examples are cemented in the pages of Scripture. And so they are illustrations for our instruction, for us to observe and emulate. You see, up until now, in the book of Philippians, we've gotten from Paul lofty exhortation after lofty exhortation. Even our passage last week had a bunch of commands for us to follow that seemed almost impossible. As you have always obeyed, so now, not only is in my presence, but also much more in my absence, work out your own salvation. And then in verse 14, do all things without grumbling or disputing. So on and so forth in the book of Philippians, it's been lofty exhortation after lofty exhortation. In the middle of that, Paul has been kind to give us the example, the perfect example of our Lord Jesus Christ. The end of chapter 2 here brings it down to earth a little bit, helping us to see how to get to these lofty exhortations and how to pursue what is even the perfect example of Christ because we see two 
mere men. Timothy and Epaphroditus, who each in their own individual ways are embodiments of Philippians theology. They are flesh and blood characterizations of a life worthy of the gospel of Christ. These gospel people are exhibit A and exhibit B of everything Paul has exhorted us to so far in this great epistle. So let's look at our passage for tonight, Philippians 2, starting in verse 19, and we'll read through the end of the chapter. Paul continues his letter this way. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare, for they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me, and I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill near to death. But God had mercy on him. And not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Father, we thank you for your word. It is in your word that we see the words of life. So even tonight, Father, as we reflect on uh, these gospel people, help us to see uh, how this impacts our lives in uh, a total and complete way as we follow Christ and seek to live lives worthy of the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. As we peer into the lives of these two gospel people. We look at the story of this. We see the book of Philippians really start to come to life. It's no longer Pauline as we would expect it to be. This passage really tells the background story, uh, at least part of it, of this epistle. So uh, before we look at the example of Timothy and Epaphroditus, I think it's appropriate that we explore a little more of their story and start to Uh, unravel and put back together the pieces of the story that we have in the passage we just read. As Paul sits in a Roman prison, it's perhaps a different perception than we have of the slammer. You see, Paul is chained to an imperial guard. We saw that in chapter 1, verse 13, uh, where Paul talks about... uh, letting the gospel be made known throughout the whole imperial guard uh, during his imprisonment. And he is also, though, as he is chained, given relative freedom to live and to 
minister and to eat and, well, to write even this letter. And so Paul has these ministry associates with him, these friends, to help him with his everyday life and his ministry. And now when the church in Philippi had heard of Paul's imprisonment, they sent this man in our passage, Epaphroditus, to Paul, and from where they were to Rome, it was a journey of 800 miles. Epaphroditus made this journey to bring Paul gifts. Look at chapter 4, verse 18. Paul says there, I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice, acceptable and pleasing to God. And so these gifts were probably monetary, but also uh, other items, perhaps scrolls or other resources for Paul's ministry. But Epaphroditus also is there, not just to drop things off, uh, he's there to minister to Paul on an ongoing basis. Look at verse 25 of chapter 2. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and soldier, and, uh, and, fellow wor- excuse me, and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. And so Epaphroditus is ministering to Paul, having been sent by the church in Philippi. Now, Epaphroditus is a rather common name. Uh, it's similar to another name we find in the New Testament, Epaphras. Uh, it's not the same person, but it's similar to that name. Epaphroditus' name actually comes from a name you've heard, Aphrodite. It's based on that, uh, that god of love. It's a Greek name. And so Epaphroditus, like many of the Philippian believers, were first-generation Greek believers. Epaphroditus is only found here in Philippians, so we have a, an admittedly limited view of this man, but a picture of a great man nonetheless. This Epaphroditus, whether along the long journey or sometime during this time ministering to Paul, he falls ill. He gets real sick. And uh, we don't know exactly what ailment he had. Uh, The commentaries spill lots of ink over what kind of illness they think he had. We just don't know. But Paul here says, look at verse 27, Indeed, he was ill near to death. But God had mercy on him. So he got better. But in the middle of that time somewhere, he was not doing well. And In fact, verse 30, Paul reiterates, look there, for he nearly died for the work of Christ. And so in this passage, we see that Paul has made the decision to send Epaphroditus back to Philippi with this letter in hand. And so, Epaphroditus is the messenger back to his home church with this letter that we are reading now. For Epaphroditus, this was an eager, emotional homegoing. You see, he'll deliver this letter and his friends will be happy, overjoyed to see him. But they'll also be a little bit surprised because they sent him to minister to Paul and to keep ministering to Paul until he was out of prison. And so, That's a dynamic we'll dig into a little more later. Ministering to Paul alongside Epaphroditus is uh, Timothy, a familiar character to us. And one familiar to the Philippian church as well. In fact, if you remember, 
back to the very beginning of our study in Philippians, we saw that Timothy was actually uh, in Acts 16 with Paul as they uh, began the Philippian church at the riverside when Lydia and her household and then the jailer and his household were converted. In fact, in chapter 1, verse 1, look there just to see this with your own eyes. Uh, this letter is co-signed by Paul on behalf of Timothy. Look at that. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. This letter is in some way from Paul, uh, from Paul and from Timothy as well. Now, to be clear, the letter is from Paul. As he continues to write, we see uh, the first person singular throughout the whole book. And then even here in this passage, Paul is talking about Timothy. So this letter is very much from Paul, but chapter 1, verse 1 shows us Timothy is with him in that kind of way. In chapter 1, verse 5, when Paul praises the Philippians' faithful partnership, he says uh, there, uh, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. He's rejoicing over the Philippians' partnership with him. Timothy was there too. Timothy has this long-standing relationship with the church in Philippi, just like Paul does. And so uh, this means a lot to both Paul and to Timothy. And as Paul seeks to eventually send Timothy, uh, Timothy has been with Paul all this time. And yet in verse 19, look there, Paul says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you. Uh, and then in verse 23, Paul says, I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. So uh, Paul is hoping to send Timothy and then also to receive him back. Now, just to understand with clarity, this sending of Timothy would be separate from sending Epaphroditus. So Paul would send Epaphroditus back with this letter. And then for different reasons, Epaphroditus, who was the Philippians minister to Paul's needs, would be sent back. Timothy would stay with Paul and would still be Paul's minister, but then would be sent by Paul to the Philippians to minister to them. So kind of an exchange program here. Now the most probable case in Paul's mind at this point is that he would send Timothy out upon his own release from prison. Uh, something that we've seen Paul hint at hoping for throughout this letter. And so Timothy would be the messenger of that good news about Paul to the Philippians. Uh, note that in verse 19, the expectation for Paul is that Timothy would return. He says, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. So Timothy would come back to Paul with good news about the Philippians. Perhaps their response to this letter that we're reading, that they would have joy and would serve with humble obedience and that they would live lives worthy of the gospel of Christ. Perhaps Timothy would bring news of their spiritual well-being and their response to this letter, this letter that Epaphroditus will have brought even just months earlier than Timothy's visit. And so, if you catch this timeline we're building here, Paul is envisioning all of this in a Roman jail cell, and he's envisioning the comings and the goings of both Timothy and Epaphroditus between Rome and Philippi, this great distance of 800 miles. And yet underneath all of that, Paul, verse 24, is trusting in the Lord for this. He says, 
And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. And so he's hoping that he too might be released and be able to visit the Philippians himself. So as we get to the end of chapter 2 here, in this great epistle, these two gospel people, Timothy and Epaphroditus, they are our halftime heroes here in this book of Philippians. At this midpoint in the letter, these are the flesh and blood examples of the theology and the instruction we've seen so far in this great epistle. They are the embodiment of the worthy life that says to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now, tonight we're going to jump around a little bit in this passage. Instead of looking verse by verse like we normally do, we're going to jump around a little bit. So bear with me and and follow along with me as we point to certain verses to see things about these gospel people. Let's look at the heart of these gospel people. The character and the priorities that are in their hearts that make them who they are. The component parts of their servant hearts. Uh, Let's see tonight in these verses three heart priorities of gospel people. We'll call them marks of gospel people. So let's follow these gospel people as they follow Christ. First we see gospel people are focused on gospel progress. Focused on gospel progress. We see here in these verses that both Timothy and Epaphroditus have a focus, a fixation on gospel progress. You guys know about Canadian geese, right? In the winter, Canadian geese fly south. They need warmth for the winter. Now, geese navigate based on experience. They use landmarks like rivers and coastlines and mountains. They also use what scientists call celestial cues, which is fancy for the sun and the stars and their position in relation to the sun and those stars. Geese, though, however, have a, an interesting, interesting thing in their heads, a sort of physical compass that allows them to tell north and south by detecting the Earth's magnetic field. Don't ask me how that works. I don't have it. And so this instinct to fly south in winter is for geese part learned and part natural instinct. Geese know to fly south in a perfect V. Part learned and part instinct. Gospel progress is the priority. It's the instinct of our hearts as Christians. It is the learned, but also natural instinct. It is the true north for gospel people. Timothy and Epaphroditus, like Paul, who who has shown his heart for the proclamation of Christ throughout this whole book, these two brothers show that same heart. Like Paul, they exist for the advancement of the gospel. This good news that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. This life-changing message that has transformed their own hearts, and so they live to proclaim it to others. 
Look at how this looks in Timothy's life. Look at verse 22. We'll look at this verse quite a bit tonight because it's a key verse in our passage. Paul says, but you know Timothy's proven worth how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. This word served is sort of the the verb version, the verbal version of a common word we know, doulos. It's the slave or the bondservant, the servant. Paul is saying here, Timothy and I have served together. We have been slaves together of our Lord Jesus Christ. And in the gospel, we have served together for the advancement of the gospel. And he has been lockstep with me. Now look at the verse prior, verse 21. Paul says, For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. Paul is describing probably these same gospel preachers, but Paul opposers that we saw in chapter 1. Look at chapter 1, verse 15. To jog our memory, Paul describes these people who are preaching Christ, but with contempt. He says there, verse 15, some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry. And then verse 17, he, 17, he describes them again. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. And so against this backdrop of envy and rivalry, this backdrop of selfish ambition uh, that we also find in chapter 2, verse 21 here, Timothy is instead this shining example of someone who doesn't seek his own interests. He's not selfishly ambitious like these other preachers are. Instead, Timothy seeks the interests. You expect it to say Paul here, right? The interests of Jesus Christ. Now this is an obvious allusion to the logic in verse 4 of chapter 2. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. You see, Timothy doesn't seek his own interests, but he seeks that which is the ultimate best interest of others that they would know and love and grow in Christ. And so Timothy's life is the embodiment of what Paul has spurred us on in throughout this book, the participation, the partnership in the gospel that Paul first spoke of in chapter 1, verses 3 to 5. Look there. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Timothy is the flesh and blood example of chapter 1, verse 18. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Timothy is the example, the human example of chapter 1, verse 27, this testimony of a way of life that is worthy of the gospel of Christ. As we have seen, this is Paul's heart. It is also indeed Timothy's heart. Turn to 2 Timothy to see the end of Paul's life. Paul instructs his, what he calls, true child in the faith. 
in 2 Timothy to carry on this legacy of gospel ministry toward gospel progress. Toward the end of his life, in a, yet in even another imprisonment, Paul writes this to his son in the faith, Timothy. Look at chapter 4, starting in verse 1. These are Paul's parting instructions after a lifetime of ministry with this brother. He says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded. Endure suffering. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. Words that are quite a charge to young Timothy, then a little bit older, but tender words, passing the baton to his protege in the gospel cause. We go back to Philippians 2, and we'll see here that also Epaphroditus is another living, breathing evidence of gospel partnership. Uh, look at chapter 2, verse 25. Paul says, I have thought it necessary to send to you, Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier and your messenger and minister to my need. Now here in verse 25, these titles that Paul labels Epaphroditus, these give us a thorough concept of Epaphroditus' identity, his heart for gospel partnership, for gospel progress. Paul calls him first my brother. Now this is more than just being a brother in Christ, Paul uses this term of personal endearment and close association. This is evidently somebody who served closely with Paul. Paul also calls him a fellow worker, a co-worker or co-laborer in the gospel. He describes many people this way, but select people in passages like Romans 16 and the end of other epistles as well, 1 Corinthians and Colossians. This is someone who, alongside Paul, put in gospel effort, hard work, and sweat equity in some way for the gospel cause. Now notice this term, though, places God at the helm, and Paul and Epaphroditus, and perhaps Timothy, too, as fellow Workers, it's reminiscent of 1 Corinthians 3. Look at 1 Corinthians 3 with me. We need to see a picture of how Paul views ministry and how he sees his fellow workers, his co laborer. 1 Corinthians 3, look at verse 5. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, 
but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. Paul's addressing these Corinthians who are being built up in Christ, but he's painting this picture of a level playing field between all of the gospel servants who have served this church in Corinth. And in Philippians, Paul sees it the same way. Epaphroditus, he is a fellow worker. He also calls them here a fellow soldier. See, not only one, not only someone who shared in Paul's work, but stood alongside him in spiritual battle, in conflict. Ephesians 6 describes uh, the the need for spiritual warfare and a readiness for that. And that's what Epaphroditus was, uh, Paul's fellow soldier uh, against the powers of darkness. Now, the last two labels are best kind of brought together and understood uh, as really one label, uh, messenger and minister. Uh, Epaphroditus was a minister sent by the Philippian church. In fact, Epaphroditus faithfully served Christ even nearly unto death, Paul says here. All of these labels, all four or five, however you take them, are descriptions of a faithful minister focused on gospel progress. Uh, Someone who had Paul's heart. You don't need to turn there, but I am reminded of 2 Corinthians 11 when Paul talks about all of the hardships that he went through. He describes uh, hardships and beatings and being stoned and shipwrecked and on journeys and being robbed and danger. And at the end of all that, he describes his heart. And he says this in verse 28. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure Daily concern on me of my anxiety for all the churches. You see, the Apostle Paul looked at all of his ministry, all the hardships he had gone through, and he understood that on top of all of that, what was at the core of his heart for these churches was gospel progress. That others be presented mature in Christ. That others would be more like their Savior. Epaphroditus and Timothy, choice servants of the Lord, who with Paul endured some of these trials and dangers that are listed in 2 Corinthians 11, as those who served in the gospel with him, as his fellow workers, his fellow soldiers, most importantly shared this 2 Corinthians 11.28 burden for all the churches, that the gospel would go forth and that Christ would be honored. this key verse in Philippians, Philippians 1.27, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Timothy and Epaphroditus are flesh and blood examples of that side-by-side striving for the faith of the gospel. 
Can this be said of your life? Are you fixed, focused on gospel progress? Or uh, are you dialed in on your career progress or gospel progress? Here at the end of a quarter as you're studying and thinking about you and your studies and what you need to do to get a good grade in this class. Uh, What kind of kingdom are you building? What kind of kingdom are you enjoying and pursuing? What's in your heart? What do you desire to see most of all? That every tribe and tongue and nation know your name and your work, your legacy? Or that every tribe and tongue and nation know the name of Christ? What's your endeavor in this life? God's glory or your own glory? These halftime heroes were fixed on gospel progress. Uh, Let it also be our always instinct, our true north, our life's aim, to see Christ honored, to see Christ proclaimed. Not only are gospel people focused on gospel progress, they're also, secondly, faithful in humble service. Faithful in humble service. Uh, Both Timothy and Epaphroditus, even in this brief section, show us a legacy of faithful and fruitful ministry. And it's ministry done humbly and without hesitation. They're always ready. There is a reliability and an effectiveness. There's a value even seen in their ministry. Paul praises them. It's significant to Paul here and serves as an example for us. You see, not just of the gospel progress focus of this kind of ministry, but the humble attitude and service-oriented approach of these gospel people. So many times, you and I want to serve, but without actually serving. So many times, you and I want to be members on a team, and teachers and leaders without committing ourselves to the actual humble service that it takes to teach and lead and be a member of a team. Some of us aspire without considering that we're aspiring to the work of the ministry. Timothy and Epaphroditus are counterexamples to this tendency of our prideful hearts. You see, they show us the humility integral to ministry. And yet they also show us the initiative and the action uh, and the willingness in this kind of ministry. These two are faithful in humble service. Really in the spirit of chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. Look there to just remind ourselves of the humility found in this chapter. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Now look at Paul's description of Timothy in verse 20. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know 
Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. You see, Timothy is of singular value to Paul. There is no one like him. This phrase, perhaps more literally translated, would mean something like this. I have no one of the same soul or of the same mind as he is. There's no one like him in oneness of soul. This speaks of like-mindedness. Now, what is this like-mindedness? I think when we think of like-mindedness, we think of doctrine. Do they have the same stance as us? Do they believe the same about the end times as us? Are they like-minded? But here, it's much more than that. Turn over to 2 Timothy again, because we need to see what Paul means by like-mindedness. 2 Timothy 3, look at verse 10. Paul says there, and he's writing to Timothy, he says, You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra. And stop there. Look at how Paul describes this like-mindedness, this one-souledness between him and Timothy. Uh, it is in gospel mission and humble service that Paul and Timothy are of one soul. They are like-minded. Uh, yes, they believe the same things, but in faith and in patience and in love and steadfastness, even under persecution, they are of one soul, unified, here in Philippians 2, verse 22, humbly serving together like father and son in the gospel. See, this unity he and Timothy have, Paul has been urging of all of us uh, that the life that is worthy of the gospel of Christ is a life of unity, all of us as one with other believers in God's church, standing side by side, striving together for the gospel. And at the core of that, where does that unity come from? Pursuing the humility exemplified by our Savior, who took on the form of a servant, and in obedience did the will of the Father. Now as our focus has been on Timothy, let's not forget, let's not forego Paul's example Let's not let, let that slip away. Notice here how he views Timothy in serving together. We thought we had two gospel people. Well, we really have three with Paul here. Look at how he understands this discipleship, how he understands the mentoring relationship he has with Timothy. And note Paul's humility in how he understands his role. You see, this enterprise is not centered on him. This is not Paul-centric. Some of you think you have it all figured out. You're a small group leader, or you're a leader in a ministry, or you're an up-and-coming, and there's nothing left to learn for you because you've made it at this point. But look here how Paul sees this father-son relationship. Verse 22, how as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. 
in First and Second Timothy, Paul calls Timothy his true child or his beloved child. Now, Timothy had come to faith under Paul's teaching. And despite that fact, that reality that, that truly he was his child in the faith, Paul sees himself humbly as a fellow servant with Timothy in gospel progress. You see, this isn't see how as a son with a father he just received everything I taught him. This isn't see how as a son with a father he became more like me, the mature one, the Apostle Paul. This is see how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. See how as a son with the father we together are growing in Christ's likeness that he would be more like me as I follow Christ. This is spiritual father and son together serving their Lord and Master. Together intent on one purpose, and that is humbly and faithfully together proclaiming Christ. Grace on campus, lest our idea of discipleship become so Paul and Timothy greater to lesser, one-way street, older to younger. Lest it become so Paul and Timothy that it's not actually like Paul and Timothy here. See Paul's heart here. The goal is mutual Christ-likeness. Mutual growth in maturity. And here, specifically, service. Humble service. Together in the gospel. Look at Paul's sweet assessment of Timothy's faithfulness and his effectiveness in ministry. Verse 22 again, you know Timothy's proven worth. This young, budding minister of the gospel, Timothy, he's proven time and time again in danger and in difficulty, facing opposition and persecution. Timothy has proven not only loyalty to Paul, but fidelity to Jesus, that is proven worth. Timothy is reliable. Timothy is available. Timothy is able. He is excellent. He has pure motives. And in Paul's eyes, he is valuable for God's work. Well, briefly, Epaphroditus is also an example of this kind of enduring ministry faithfulness, this kind of humble service. Epaphroditus is, by the evidence of what has happened here in his life, we see he is a providential example of sacrificial service. He may not be the preacher that Timothy is. He may not be the protege that Timothy is. But he is, nonetheless, an example of sacrificial service. You see, laying aside his own lot in life to serve. To travel 800 miles to not just enjoy a vacation or sip espresso and uh, eat bread or uh, enjoy the countryside. He traveled 800 miles without, a, without an airplane or a phone to serve somebody else. What an example of sacrificial service. Truly to Epaphroditus, to 
live was Christ and to die was gain. And he was almost there, Paul shows us. This is the kind of Romans 12, 1 and 2 living sacrifice that is worship to God, a life that is not entitled to its own rights and opportunities, but a life fully surrendered to the cause of Christ, humble and willing to do His bidding no matter the cost. We hear this, we read this, and we think, this is missionary logic. To be so sold out for Christ that you humbly serve. And if you're a missionary, you go to great lengths to put yourself in a position to travel someplace far and serve others maybe even a group of people that you don't know, and then you learn their language, and you learn their culture, and you learn to love their food, and then you love them. All in humble service to Christ, giving up your very own life that they might find life. Giving up your mission for God's mission. This is missionary logic, right, preacher? Why is this missionary logic this is gospel people logic you see for gospel people people who have been redeemed by the blood of christ humble service to the cause of christ is our calling there are so many things far easier to sacrifice so many opportunities far easier to take up so many areas far easier for us to learn and grow in this heart And so let's do that. Let's be found faithful in humble service as gospel people. Finally and quickly, the gospel people are filled with Christian affection. Gospel people are filled with Christian affection. It is so evident here that Paul and Timothy and Epaphroditus all share not only a kingdom priority and not only a christ-exalting other-centered heart of humble service they also have a deep and abiding affection for one another and for others the philippian church for example now this is evident in paul's heart throughout his ministry throughout his epistles but If you remember, even in Philippians, it's all over chapter 1. Look at chapter 1, verse 7. Paul says there, It is right for me to feel this way about you uh, all, because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And throughout this letter, he calls them brothers or beloved. And Paul, as he sees God's work in their lives, he is joyfully expectant of more and more that their love and knowledge and discernment would abound. That the fruit of righteousness would overflow in their lives. In fact, even in our passage, he says about sending Timothy, he says that I may be that I too may be cheered by news of you. Paul is expectant of the Philippians' growth because he loves them in Christ. 
This is exactly Timothy's heart as well. Look again at verse 20 of chapter 2. For I have no one like him, Paul says, who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. You see, Paul's heart of gospel affection for the Philippians is also Timothy's heart. Uh, That's why Paul endeavors to send Timothy, because he knows this humble servant will serve them and lead them and shepherd them and when needed rebuke them and correct them like he himself would and Timothy would do it all in love. Paul is telling Timothy in 1 Timothy 1 about a tough situation to correct and rebuke and he says this, he says, the aim of our charge is love from a pure heart. And that's indeed the heart that both Paul and Timothy have here in Philippians. And it's so evident to us. This is true of Epaphroditus as well. Notice in verse 26 the reason that Epaphroditus needs to return. Here's why, as helpful as a minister he is to Paul, Epaphroditus is being sent back. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. See, Epaphroditus loves his home church so much. He is so consumed with genuine Christian affection for those who sent him to Paul, and Paul sees that. So in Paul's view, it is necessary for Epaphroditus to now return and sort of ease the tension of them, the Philippians, having heard of his illness, and at this point, not knowing that he is indeed well again. Look how Epaphroditus' emotion and affection is described here. He has been longing for you all and has been distressed. This word longing is the same word as Paul's yearning or longing in chapter 1, verse 8 that we just looked at. And then he has been distressed. I mean, this is, the, this is the same word in Mark 14 of Jesus in Gethsemane, who in the garden is greatly distressed. Same word there. And troubled. Epaphroditus is greatly concerned. He is deeply troubled. Not about his own sickness. Uh, not about himself or making the trip back. But in Christian affection, about how the Philippians are doing because they've heard he's sick, but they don't know he's better. And so he knows the depth of relationship would mean they're probably concerned about me. So he needs to go back. You see, he's not worried in some selfish, inward-focused kind of way. This isn't just him getting lost in his emotions. He just can't text them an update, so he has to go. His affection, his love for them compels him, draws him to go back to Philippi all 800 miles. And Paul sees that and supports that. In verse 25, it says he thinks it's necessary to send him. In verse 28, he doubles down. Paul is more eager to send him. I think we would sometimes see the emotionality of a situation like this and uh, you might think, come on. Suck it up, man. Get back to work. You're here for gospel ministry. But look at the gentle and kind 
shepherd that Paul is. Look at the trust Paul has in the genuineness of affection that he sees in Epaphroditus and he knows is is true of the Philippians. That if for Epaphroditus, what will make this whole thing better is his returning home, then Paul wants that. In fact, Paul's own affection spills out on the page here. Look at verse 27, his own empathetic affection in Epaphroditus' health scare. Indeed, he was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. And then in verse 28, his support of Epaphroditus' return trip. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again. And then he turns the, the whole thing on himself, and that I may be less anxious too. The implication here is that Paul also feels the same way Epaphroditus does. He's concerned because the Philippians are concerned, because Epaphroditus is concerned. And so the solution is that he sends Epaphroditus back. This letter, Philippians, to that church in hand. And Paul wants to make it clear why this brother is coming back. He wants to connect the dots. He anticipates that the Philippians might be like us, assuming that Epaphroditus was weak, a a cop-out for returning when his job was to minister to Paul and stay in Rome. But verses 28 and 29 help us to understand Paul's heart. Verse 29 especially. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. See, Paul in genuine love is commending Epaphroditus leaving no room for doubt as to his faithfulness and his fervor in serving as he was sent to do. And that's exactly why he is eager to send him back. It's clear in Paul's eyes, God had mercy on Epaphroditus with this illness. And now Paul is saying, yes, in God's providence now, he's returning earlier than you expected. But he completed the task, task. He, he, he risked his life to fulfill the service that the Philippians had intended. This little phrase at the end of uh, verse 30, to complete what was lacking, is not Paul throwing shade. It's to say, you all couldn't come and serve yourself. And so you sent Epaphroditus to complete that service. That's all Paul is saying here. And he's saying, he did so faithfully. He completed the task. So receive him back in the Lord with all, with all joy. Honor such men. Acknowledge him. Thank him. Esteem him. This is the priority in ministry of Christian affection. The high value of Genuine relationship and real love. Authenticity with each other and connectedness and presence in each other's lives. Genuine coming alongside one another in ministry and then appreciation of that coming alongside one another. This is trust built and meaningful friendships grown because that's what makes and maintains real gospel partnership real and actual relationships. Alistair Begg says it this way, it is impossible to serve God 
without serving one another. I wonder if you're here and you're plugged, you're, you're plugged in now or you're trying to get plugged in early on in the game. But you know when it comes to this, you sort of know how to float freely. You know how to keep everyone at arm's length. You know how to ask sort of the right questions and how to answer the right questions and how to share just enough prayer requests at the right level. And yet you know in your heart there's distance, there's not connectedness. And it's maybe everyone else's fault that you don't feel plugged in. You're not genuinely connected with other believers around you and you know it. There isn't Christian affection in your heart. The idea of others loving you with sincerity maybe is even off-putting to you. Christian, the life that is worthy of the gospel of Christ is a life that is open. A life that is at first growing in affection for others and is willing to receive that kind of affection. Maybe that starts in small group. Maybe that starts over lunches uh, in the dining hall. And then that life that is growing in its worthiness of the gospel of Christ becomes this display that is overflowing with affection, that cares for others, that bears one another's burdens, that seeks out the interests of others and ministers to those needs. Gospel people are filled with this kind of Christian affection. Now, in our world, copying people is a sign of weakness. Right? Doing something in a way that others have done already before. That's lame. We, as a society, as an institution here at UCLA, champion originality, groundbreaking research, right? Carve out your own space in your industry in your own kind of way. The Christian faith is unoriginal. It is emulation. It is followership. It is following someone as they follow Christ. In fact, it's not weakness. Our strength is found in the fact that we stand on the shoulders of giants. Paul, Timothy, Epaphroditus, these halftime heroes, these giants are simply gospel people flesh and blood examples of lives worthy of the gospel of Christ. And friends, two millennia later, you and I, we too are gospel people. And as gospel people, we stand on their shoulders as we endeavor to be focused on gospel progress, faithful in our humble service, and filled with Christian affection. Let's pray to that end. Father, thank you for your word. We look to you and know that even as we end this quarter, we seek to be faithful uh, gospel people. So help us, O God, even in this season of study and the season of uh, being uh, on our own, getting ready for finals, help us to look up and look out and to see how we can be a worthy display of the gospel of Christ. Thank you, God, for these flesh and blood examples to bring sort of down to earth what this book of Philippians has shown us already. Uh, This focus on gospel progress, this uh, focus on humility, and uh, this Christian affection. Father, stir up in our hearts, even as we 
and uh, another quarter of grace on campus that uh, you would well up in our hearts uh, love and affection and conviction that comes from being in your word. So Father, would you bless our study of this great book as we've already spent two chapters and look to much more this next quarter. Father, uh, we thank you so much for your word. And we now respond in gratefulness to you, O God. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.